You're listening to the VoiceOver Hour podcast, brought to you by the VoiceOver Network, with special sponsors, Rode Microphones, Source Elements, Studio Bricks, and Focusrite. My name's Rachel Naylor, and I'm your host. The VoiceOver Hour podcast takes you behind the scenes in the voiceover industry, sharing stories, insights, and so much more. The VoiceOver Hour podcast will be dropping every Tuesday. It'll be up to an hour long, some interviews more, some less, and I'm going to be talking to wonderful experts in the voiceover industry who are going to share their stories as well as share information and advice for you. I started the VoiceOver Network five and a half years ago because I wanted to create a safe place for voiceover professionals to come together to help and support each other, to get the right information and to strengthen this amazing industry we work in. The VoiceOver Network is a global community of voiceover professionals and I'm so proud of what we've created. I want to empower you on your journey. This episode was recorded on the Roadcaster Pro Podcast Production Studio, the amazing all-in-one podcasting console from Rode Microphones. Hello and welcome to the VoiceOver Hour podcast. Uh, today we've got a very special guest joining us and I'm really excited to talk to him about his career and uh, yes, lots of things that we're going to discuss today. So um, John Briggs has been appearing on stage and on screen and on air for over 30 years. John is one of the best known commercial voices in the UK. He's founder of his own agency, Excellent Talent. Uh, and in 2011, he became the first UK English speaking voice of Siri. Yes, you have all heard him. Uh, he has voiced numerous high-profile advertising campaigns, including Duracell, The Mirror, The Times, Nokia, Activeview, British Airways. And he also works as an award ceremony announcer, which is known in the trade as Voice of God. Welcome, John. Hello, hello. That sounds quite impressive. I almost didn't recognize myself. <laughs> it is an honor to have you on the VoiceOver Hour podcast. And um, yeah, thank you for joining us today. Always a pleasure to, to wibble about voiceovers. It's been part of my life for a very long time. It has, hasn't it? You've you've been so you've been doing voiceovers for for how long? Goodness me! I mean, do you know what? We're coming up for next year. Will be my fortieth anniversary working in radio, TV, voiceovers, anything wow. to do with kind of generally prostituting yourself uh, either visually or or audibly. Um, wow. which is, yeah, uh, April the 4th, uh, 1981. Uh, funnily enough, I met up with a colleague that I worked with back at the BBC, uh, BBC Radio Oxford was my alma mater, uh, and uh, a lovely man called Chris Phillips. I met up with him the other day, who's busily running now a community radio station not far from me, um, and he was in trying to inveigle me to present the breakfast show, and I was resisting, given that I've done five years of getting up at 3.30 in the morning in my in my youth, and it was tough enough then, and now I'm very ancient. I don't think I can possibly do it. <laughs> You're not ancient. Oh, I feel You're a bit ancient. ancient. I mean, 40 years is a long time 
People kind of retire with carriage clocks, you know, after 40 years. <laughs> I have to I have to state before anyone goes, God, he, he's looking really good for, for 73. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I started when I was 16. So so that gives you you can do the math. There we go. Wow. Wonderful. And so so tell us. So um, tell everybody, how how did you get into voiceovers? Yeah, it's kind of by accident, really. And radio was what I always wanted to do. I love radio. Um, I think I still do. I fell slightly out of love with it uh, about sort of 10 years ago. I think I still love it. And I think I still probably want to give it another go before we kind of shuffled off this mortal coil. (laughs) But um, radio, radio was the thing. And I started, I started in Oxford and I kind of local radio was just the most amazing place then, because you could do everything. Uh, you did everything from brassoing the jack plugs for a grade one broadcast. I think the BBC still has grade one broadcasts. Qu- Queen's Christmas speech, that's a grade one broadcast. And okay. you would literally, you'd brasso the jack plugs. I don't think they have jack plugs anymore. But anyway, that shows you how old I am. Um, and uh, so we started a little what we call trails unit. So we did promotions for things within the station. But we also used to pull what's-ons, um, which are things that people had submitted going, you know, there's a white elephant stool happening and little riddling on the sly, um, you know, and, and it's 2.30 on a Saturday. And we and we'd kind of create scripts around them. Yeah. Um, and I can remember I was still at school at that point, so I can remember sitting in biology lessons, and instead of concentrating on zygotes and amoeba and stuff like that, I was writing scripts for the, you know, how to sell the Radio Oxford jumper or the Radio Oxford diary. In, in my rough book instead, which was did nothing for my A-level grades whatsoever. I'm sure it's not the sort of thing you get away with now. Um, and so I fell into radio and I loved it. I became a Radio 4 reporter when I kind of right, went to university and then kind of got bored with it and said, thought, I want a career with the BBC. And I think everybody thought I was going to go and, and be part of the BBC graduate training scheme, which was an enormously popular and very difficult thing to get onto. And so many of the well-known, probably producer directors, perhaps more than presenters, went on it. But I mean, the people who have ended up running the BBC were were all graduate trainees. And it gave you an incredible trajectory because you worked all around this this national organization. Uh, And I didn't really want that. I was just interested in being on air. My ego was such that, you know, that I just wanted to broadcast. Um, And so after kind of doing various things within the BBC, uh, I went back, I did the breakfast show when I was 20 years old, far too young to know anything. Absolutely. Because Oxford was, of course, not only it was town and gown. So it wasn't just university. You know, British Leyland was a very big, big part of it. And the mini factory, of course, is the remnant of what was British Leyland in Cowley in Oxford there now. Uh, and of course, there was lots of trade union stuff going on there. And 20 years old, I had no idea what a trade union even was pretty much. You know, I didn't have a mortgage and I didn't have kids and I didn't have all these things that probably most of our listeners had. So every so often they kind of hive off any of the serious interviews to a proper news producer instead of me, because I kind of I knew nothing, but I could actually present the program. Um, And then I went to Channel 4. I saw an advert for Channel 4. I was horrifically ambitious. And, and, you know, two years on a breakfast show, that was enough for me. I thought I needed to go to London. I needed to go to something more important, exciting anyway. Uh, and I applied to be a Channel 4 announcer. And there were really only four TV stations in those days. Uh, hard to believe, I know. Um, and there were only about sort of six or seven announcers on each channel. So you became quite well known very quickly. And within that sphere, I found myself a voiceover agent. 
and they sent me on a job to to uh, to read one word, which was scalextric. And that's all I said. And I got paid a very silly amount of money for this. And I thought, that's quite good. I quite enjoy this. I think I'll do more of it. Nice. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. long story. You didn't no, know when I was going to finish, did you? You were no. sitting there going, is he over? <laughs> no, absolutely. No, it's um, it's always interesting. I always think it's fascinating hearing how different people kind of come into the industry. And I think it's, it's you know, so often people come in either via the, the sort of acting route or via the broadcasting route. Um, those are the two sort of main areas that people come in. But people come in from other other areas too. But that's just, I think that's... Yeah, I think we were right. Those are the, those are the main inputs. And, and it's interesting as well because, you know, as, as we mentioned, running an agency, I spent... 25 years um, with, you know, the different types of people bringing them on, uh, helping them um, uh, and uh, and putting them to work, really. Yeah. And um, I always say that, you know, actors have all the emotional, but broadcasters and singers have the technical. And and the reason that voiceover is not simply reading aloud is because it's a combination of the two, the emotional and the technical. And you yeah. have to be able to do both. And as I said, you know, actors tend to be very good at, you know, the emotional. Um, you tell a broadcaster or a singer to shave 12 frames off something, they don't need to know. They, they have that inbuilt sense of timing in their head, yeah. which actors can, of course, learn. Uh, but it's not necessarily natural to them because actors are they're generally not time constrained in what they're having to do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then also, so you, you're the original voice of Siri in the UK. Um, and what, what's that like? Because it must be, I mean, it must be quite incredible to have kind of become the first, you were the first voice of Siri. I preface all of this with, I think there are probably people out there with far better voices than I have. I never, voiceover was never my aim. I never went into it going, oh, I think I want to be a voiceover. I kind of fell into it. And if you told me 40 years ago that this is one of the ways I'd be earning my living uh, and I'd be recognized probably mostly for my voice over and above everything else I've done, I yeah. would have said you were crazy uh, because I, you know, I used to listen to other people's voices who have Ray Moore was just the most wonderful sounding voice and was generally the voice of the, the promo voice of BBC One, which myself and Alan Dedicote followed in his footsteps, in fact. Yeah. Uh, and in the early 1990s, we were both the voices of BBC One and BBC Two. But it was Ray who'd kind of trailblazed that and had the most warm and, and wonderful voice. And, and of course, people like Terry Wogan and, and so on, the, the voices that I grew up with and emulated in terms of how I, my radio career was. I, I simply loved Kenny Everett. Yeah. Um, and, and when I was working at the BBC in Oxford, I tried, I suppose, not to emulate him, but I certainly wrote certain you know, silly serials uh, that were a bit like Captain Kremen and the Krells, only they were probably based a little more around those comic icons that I looked up to that were part of my childhood, which were things like the goodies and bits of Monty Python and so on. The sort of stuff that 13-year-old boys would recite in the playground the following day after the show. And indeed, 13 and 14, maybe 15-year-old boys actually thought if you quoted at girls, they, they fell in love with you, which of course was not true, as I found out to my cost. Quoting bits of Monty Python to 15-year-old girls never worked. No. Uh, and so, children, I tried to, and I'm advising you now, don't try it. It's not big and it's not clever. Um, but uh, so, again, I need to say that first and foremost, because it was never my intention to go into these things. And again, the agency was a bit sort of, 
we, we weren't really, we thought we could do it better. I, ha I had discovered several techniques of being able to hear what voices sounded like without you having to ring the agency. Mm. And that's to me in an industry that didn't work Monday to Friday, nine to five, um, seemed like a clever idea. And that's where the agency was formed from. So to come on to your original question, sorry, again, a very yeah. long winded way around to it. Siri was something that turned up out of the blue and it turned up not because I auditioned for Siri. And again, I'm sure people think, well, he owns the agency. This job came in and he went, oh, Siri, the voice of Apple. Oh, I'll have that. Thank you very much indeed. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, this was actually recorded 2005, 2006 for a company called Scansoft, who were uh, then bought out by the people who make uh, Dragon Dictation uh, because they were they were big into into voice synthesis and voice recognition. And the two kind of go hand in hand, but they're actually very different sciences, of course. And we recorded this system for them over about sort of three weeks. Uh, it was actually done over ISDN, would you believe? Uh, you know, the idea that I was sitting in my own home-built studio in London and they were recording in, in the US. And we did it over ISDN, so they would record me at their end, but I would also record locally as well, so that if they missed anything and the ISDN signal broke up, we would still have clean copies of everything. And... I uh, I never thought much more about it. I mean, it was a, clearly a big thing. The sum of money was nice. Nothing, absolutely nothing like what uh, can be achieved uh, on doing AI style voices. Uh, well, I suppose not necessarily now because it's changed a bit. But I mean, certainly the big growth area for AI voices was was about four or five years ago. And yeah. everyone was clamoring to get the right voice because that was when all these products, Bixby, Alexa, Cortana, and so on, were suddenly emerging as being part of our household lives. Um, and those were huge, humongous deals. And now there are so many of them out there, of course, they've retracted slightly. So the money was, was, was nice, but never really thought anything more about it. And then um, it kind of grew, and it grew because of Siri. And, and it was only because what happened was Apple looked at this process and went, goodness me, that's complicated to make our own, despite their trillions in the bank. Um, and they decided simply to license it off the shelf. So the four original Siri voices, who have all been replaced now because we were all well-known voiceovers in our own right, and we got identified because yeah. the voices are very, very similar to ours. I mean, they are us, of course, but yeah. slightly compressed and synthesized. And, you know, then I, I don't sound exactly like the voice that is Siri. But then that's because its wavelength is, is much smaller. Its bandwidth is much smaller, I should say. And it's yeah. coming out at a tinny little speaker at the bottom of your iPhone. Um, so, but it's still us. Yeah. And because we got recognized as individuals, we were then removed. Um, and again, long-winded answer to your first question, which is, what is it like? I'm immensely proud of it. Yeah. Hugely proud of it. I'm very proud of it primarily because I know that Siri is not just a fun thing that, you know, answers how much would, would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> when I, and I love the fact that Siri has a sense of humour. Yes. But more importantly, it gives access to the things that you and I take for granted, which is visual uh, access to uh, screens and, and what's happening on them um, and allows people who are sight impaired or who have no sight to have access to all of the wonderful things that we have access to readily. 
And I think it's hard for an awful lot of us to, to understand until you take, pick up your phone and close your eyes and you try and navigate around that thing. You try and now have access to all the amazing apps and things that, that help you um, without having a voice guiding you around the screen. And that's what I think I'm proudest of. It's, it is lovely to have turned up in millions of people's pockets and it's lovely to be recognized for it. But I think overall, and I know it gets used by the RNIB, and I know that there's, you know, there are new inventions out there. I was told of one quite recently, which is um, a, a white stick for blind people, which incorporates a camera and a voice so that the camera can start identifying objects that it can see and will tell you what those things are. So you could have a little pair of you know, earbuds in and as you're walking around, it'll warn you of things that it sees and identifies. Um, so it kind of sees things for you. And they have incorporated my voice as the voice that tells you what's happening around you, which I just think is brilliant. And so what's it like? It, it's that that instance, amazingly rewarding. Uh, and for the rest of it, slightly bizarre and gives me wonderful kudos uh, for people under sort of the age of 20, 25, um, which also allows me to go into schools and go, Guys, you need to know what you're doing with this amazing instrument that you play every day and you don't even think about it. So I do a, I do a talk called Be Kind to Your Eyebrows because oh, yeah. teenagers, 16, 17, 18-year-olds, spend more time plucking their eyebrows than they do thinking about their voice. Yes. It's kind of, leave the eyebrows alone, guys. Let's talk about you know, the amazing impact you make with this thing, which, which certainly, I mean, using teenage stereotypes, and I apologize for offending people of that age group, but you know, there's quite a bit of grunting that goes on at that age. Uh, your kids have yet to reach that age, of course, Rachel. Yes, but then, you know, it's yeah, it's coming. <laughs> um, so they're quite you know, bouncy and communicative, and it's when they get sort of twelve and thirteen, they go a lot as they open the fridge and devour everything that's inside it. Yeah. Um, uh, so that it, it does allow me to go listen. You know, the thing that changes everything in your life is your voice. Yeah. You know, it'll tell the person you're going to marry that you want to marry them. It'll tell them that you love them. It'll tell them that you're breaking up with them. It'll tell them that you, the boss that you want to rise. It'll tell the boss that you're resigning. It'll, it just, it is what changes our environment and the way we use it and the effectiveness that we use with it is, is so vital. I was really, really lucky last year, um, which seems like a, an eon ago now, I chaired the judging panel of the English speaking unions, international speaking um, competition. Wow. And it was full of really, really young people. I mean, I, I again, felt very old, uh, but it was full of uh, youngsters aged sort of sort of 16 through to sort of 21, 22. And they were from all over the world. So for a lot of them, English wasn't even their first language. Mm -hmm. And I got to see the finalists. But there's an awful lot of heats that led up to that point. But they were superb. They were yeah. absolutely amazing. And these were kids, young adults, I should say. Kids is the wrong term. Young adults who who had understood the power of communication, the amazing things you can do with storytelling. And, and that's one of the other side jobs that I do now that, again, is, is aside from my voiceover careers, I spend people, I spend time telling other people, normally business people, um, how to tell stories yeah. when you are presenting to people, when you're communicating to other people, because that's how we communicate. Yes. We do what we're doing now. We tell stories of, of where we've been, what we've done, and how, what we've seen and, and how we've done it. And, and the mistake we make a lot of the time these days is in business, we spend time with lots of slides and lots of writing behind us with non-tangibles, things that we cannot touch, uh, cannot even envision. You know, we have to um, 
or envisage, I should say. We have to we have to be able to form pictures in our, our mind's eye to be able to remember stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, as you get older, you know, there's, there's a lot of things to remember. So the more visuals or the more tags that you have against certain facts and figures, the more easily you remember them. So if you tell somebody's story about the facts and figures that this business has generated, then there's much more chance of you remembering it. Yes. Uh, and so that's what I'm doing a lot of the time at the moment is is kind of figuring out how they can turn what, in essence, what you might approach face on as being boring, mm -hmm. how you can make that memorable. And people will say, listen, it's the profit and loss account of widgets.com. You know, how, how am I going to make that into a story? I said, well, just think about it. You know, behind those numbers are people. Yeah. Those numbers don't generate themselves. There are people who have stories to tell. You know, the Vikings did not did not pass on their stories with PowerPoint. No. You know, they didn't sit there and go, here's a slide of what I did, you know, and where I went. And, no. They actually passed on these amazing stories from father to son, from father to son, throughout the generations by these wonderful stories mm -hmm. that they created. And they sat around log fires and they told them. And that's how we learn and that's how we process information is storytelling. And it was wonderful to hear these amazing youngsters tell fabulous stories uh, and the power with which they told them and the use of their voice to enthuse and to capture their audience was just fascinating and a wonderful privilege to do. Uh, and it was one of the best things I think I've done in the past few years. Wow. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it's an enormously wonderful, I always tell you, I mean, you know I bore people with this, but it's the most powerful instrument you'll ever play. It is absolutely. I mean, the power of of, of our voice, and you're, you're absolutely right. And as voiceover artists, I think you know sometimes, and and people outside the voiceover industry, I think often think, oh, well, it's just talking, you know. But yeah. but what we do as voiceover artists is so important, and we you know we inform people, we educate people, we inspire people, we we use our voice to to communicate um, messages, really important messages. And, and I think sometimes that that you know that's kind of swept away and so it's wonderful that you've you know by you know talking about Siri and the power of Siri and the fact that you know your voice has helped so many people around the world to access technology and to improve their lives and and, and that's that's magical right um, and please don't think I take any credit for that I absolutely don't um, but uh, but as if I'm going to be used I, w I will sit there quite happily and reflect on the fact that you know, these wonderful, amazing, creative and able people who are just simply lacking one aspect of their lives that, you know, by for, through through a, a, a fate, I suppose, is probably the best way of putting it, um, uh, simply do not have, you know, as good sight as or any sight as, as you and I have are able to do exactly the same things that, 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 that you and I do. That's that's a bit I take great pleasure in being included as part of but i am a passenger in it you know i don't desire to de de devise the software and i have nothing to do with the skill with which you know these these amazing ideas are, are propagated um but i'm very very happy that, that, that i am part of that and and hopefully it lives on you know long long past me yeah, which is yeah. Well, I mean, that's I guess it's leaving leaving a legacy. Uh, it's quite amazing to sort of think that about about our voices. Um, yeah, well, but I think that's important anyway. And I think that's another thing that's often ignored about voices. Um, you know, they're part of the soundtrack of our lives. If particularly, you know, particularly if you're you are broadcasting or if you are part of 
you know, regularly heard are on television. I mean, I think I'm not necessarily aware of how ubiquitous my voice is in some ways, because the one thing that d does take me by surprise is when people go, oh, yeah, I used to listen to you when you were on LBC. Oh, I used to listen to you. I mean, you go, you go log on to YouTube. There are commercials that I did. The, I did the BBC One Christmas campaign in 1991 or was it 1992? It was round about then Christmas 91 or Christmas 92. And to do the BBC One Christmas campaign is, a, is, is three weekends because there's so many promotions involved in it. Three weekends of sitting, voicing something like 73 different promotions, I think we did, and five different versions of each promotion. So uh, I can't even do the math, but it's, you know, yeah. almost 400 of them. And um, you've got um, the five versions are, you know, next week um, on Friday, uh, tomorrow, tonight and in half an hour. Those are the five different versions you did. And of course, in my day, it wasn't digital. So you couldn't do the bulk of it and then just tag it, you yeah. know, and put the little bit on the end because they could use the rest of it. We were doing it on one inch tape, which meant we had to do five different individual versions of it. We had to go through the whole thing five times and I had to get it right five times. So in essence, if there is a skill in what I did, I was able to repeat it once I knew where all the holes were, where you had to put the, the sound. And uh, the idea of a promo might sound slightly odd to people, but generally it's got what we call sound on VT. So in other words, there are clips of the program in between which you go, you know, tomorrow in an amazing battle and somebody goes, ah, and there's a dagger going clang, you know, it will be seen on the television. And somebody says, sorry, I didn't hear you, Deirdre. And, you know, so you have to fit your bits in between the sound that's actually already on there. Um, and sometimes it's quite tight and sometimes it's quite loose. Very rarely fits exactly. Um, so I had I had the ability to reproduce that sort of five times once I'd nailed it, as it were which meant that we could get through the 350, 400 promos we had to do in three weekends. Um, and those are on YouTube. Somebody's kind of taken them off an old VHS. And I'm sitting there listening to me doing these promos going, goodness me, I sound a lot better now. Thank goodness I do. Yeah, how funny. How funny. It is amazing. And and you do, I mean, you do a lot of voice of God work as well. So that's quite a, an area of the industry. It's quite an interesting area of the industry. And it's a very... Uh, very specific skill isn't it to to do voice of god i mean you do a lot of obviously at the moment there aren't so many events and award ceremonies in person but um but yeah what are, i mean you enjoy doing voice of god because i guess it's quite sort of it's it's live isn't it so there's there's something that's quite exciting about it generally yes and I, and I do love live i mean you know my background is live live radio i've done i don't know i can't tell you how many thousands of of live radio shows i mean if you Think about the fact that for 20 years I did either a daily or a weekly show with my name above the door. Um, wow. That's a lot of hours on air. Yeah. And um, the, the the voice of God thing is, is slightly slightly odd, but yes, it, it has the the pleasure of of being live and the pleasure of reacting to your audience as well. Mm. So whereas doing a voiceover with a script in a studio is fairly passive. Um, doing voice of God is very reactive. And one of the things that occasionally happened in the past was you know, voices who had been on our books would come to me and go, look, I'm sure I can do voice of God as well. You know, and I say, yeah, but have you done any? Oh, yes, yes. No, I did all the announcements for, um, you know, a ph ph photography awards. I said, but did you do them live? 
no, 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 we pre-recorded them. And I go, well, that's not voice of God. Um, that's that's simply voiceover. And, and yeah. it is different because you're working with the rest of the crew. You're working with the show caller. You're working with the sound guy. Uh, you're working with the presenter who's on stage, who's very often a fairly well-known comedian or a news presenter because they normally have some form of celeb who's standing on stage. And you have to be appreciative of them. And of course, you know, you need to work tightly with them, respond to them if necessary, fish them out of a hole if they are finding themselves lost uh, sometimes, which can easily happen. I, one of the first Asian awards we had to do was presented by Lord Sebastian Coe. Uh, and, and halfway through, you know, he kind of pauses. Uh, and I literally had to go, OK, he's, he's, he's stuck. He doesn't know what's going next. I think you'll find the next bit's you, Lord Coe. You know, it's little things like that you have to drop in um, without making them look like they've got lost. Um, and so it, it, it's it is fun to do. I have to say I'm missing it, though. I, if when, when like most work, of course, when you're in the midst of it, you go, oh, gosh, I've got to go out again tonight. I will be spending September through till um, end of November, of course, because they don't really do awards in December because they're always at Christmas parties. Yeah. But I would spend most two two or three evenings a week in a central london hotel or maybe marquee these days um you know certainly around park lane a lot of the time because those are mainly the hotels that can manage to accommodate a thousand or fifteen hundred people and i would be voicing all of these things and and the nice thing is it's it's once you've worked with a, a team uh, they tend to re-employ you and they tend to like having you back they you know you are a consistent part of of the awards um, and, and of course, you know, some of them are difficult. You know, there's a lot of farmer awards with some really, really difficult drugs that often win. And what you don't want is somebody looking through them going, I can't do that word. So yeah. you've got to be able to get it right first time and you've got to be able to read it through without pausing and sound correct. Because yeah. if you're doing the farmer awards, there's a whole bunch of pharmacists and you know, medical people in the room who know how it's pronounced. You know, yes. you can't pretend you can get, to get away with it. So there is a certain skill to it. Um, I, I've done, I've done, I would expect to be doing between 30 and 40 uh, a year. I, I will have done six, I think, this year. Wow. Um, and those are all virtual. Um, yeah. So we've got one coming uh, not too far away, which will be the Farming Awards, which actually we recorded sort of three or four weeks ago um, with Vernon Kay uh, and myself. And again, that was nice because Vernon and I have worked together on several occasions and we worked together on Farming Awards last year. So we were able to back refer to, you know, what fun it was when we were doing it for real and how much we miss it and, yeah. and stuff like that. So, yeah. And, and you, you know, it's, it's fun working with all these very talented individuals. You know, Daro, Brian, I work with Ronnie Corbett. Um, uh, so many of them, almost too many to list. Michael McIntyre from when way back when, when he was really very unknown. Um, and the, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's interesting watching these people. It's interesting watching them for several reasons, um, because sometimes, sometimes, and naming no names, some of them aren't always as nice as you'd like them to be. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah. Saving that for the book, though. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, <laughs> yes, the book, the book. <laughs> um, but wonderful. And... Um, uh, and yeah, just going back to the award ceremony, I think that there's, I've, I mean, I've not done lots. I've done a couple 
um, a voice of God's things. And I, you know, for me, having not worked in broadcasting, I came from the acting side of things. But I, uh, you know, my memory of it was having somebody talking in my ear and all sorts of things going wrong behind the scenes and, you know, people arguing stuff. And then I was just having to sort of continue doing my thing while I had all this madness going on in my cans. Um, so I remember that. Yeah, you, you are the swan uh, looking yes. serene on top while things are falling apart behind you. And that's, that's the whole point. I think the other thing to say that, that many people find off-putting about Voice of God is you have to be able to work with a delay. Yeah. Because these rooms are vast and there are some that are literally airplane hangers that I work yeah. in. And so the speakers are up the front of the room, of course, alongside the stage. And you can have up to a second and a half delay coming back at you because you're sitting at the back of the room with the rest of the crew. So you have to be able to cope with speaking and hearing yourself come back at a significant volume, mm. um, uh, which, of course, is incredibly off-putting. So that is a technique you have to be able to learn and cope with. There are things, of course, you can do to mitigate it. You know, you can take a feed off the sound desk, which gives you direct feed of your microphone and enclose your head in the headphones. So that's all you get. But actually, you can't blank it out completely. There is no way you can remove it totally. So you do have to have that skill. And and that's not one that everybody possesses. Yeah. I learned it partly from um, there's a technique that the, the, the news reporters are doing. And, and of course, we sit here and talk about um, voiceover. I'm really a broadcast journalist. I'm not really okay. a voiceover at all. <laughs> um, I spent most of my time broadcasting and interviewing uh, speech radio, some speech telly, yeah. Not a huge amount, because I'm probably better on radio than a face for radio, you know me. Uh, but I'm better on radio than I am on TV. And TV takes 16 people to do everything. Radio is just you and the listener, really. Um, and uh, there's a technique the TV reporters will do if they have to deliver a very long piece to camera, which is you record the piece on a dictaphone and then feed it into your earpiece. So you are actually repeating the words that you have said on the dictaphone about half a second afterwards. Yeah. Uh, and it means that you can operate without an auto cue in front of you uh, to be able to get through very long, sometimes very detailed pieces to camera that you sometimes are asked to deliver. And that really helped with when I came to do Voice of God, because I was used to kind of dealing with extraneous sounds that were off putting. Mm. So, so people who are listening, who are thinking, you know, there may be people thinking, oh, I could do that Voice of God thing. Um, what advice would you give to anybody who's thinking about doing Voice of God? Um, well, be prepared for the fact that that actually what you hear is going to be quite difficult to contend with sometimes because it's your own voice coming back to you a second and a half later. Yeah. Be prepared for the fact that audiences are unpredictable. Be prepared for the fact that presenters are unpredictable. Uh, and and you, you must, 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 although you can mark up a script, you've got to be able to read... Um, sight read really very clearly you know if I stumble once in a in a kind of two and a half hour um, ceremony I am I'm cross with myself mm. because um, you know I, I'm you know, I'm not that's that's me getting the job wrong yeah as it were um, I think it's it, it is fun to do but that they can be difficult and they can be long. I mean, you know, I've done award ceremonies with over 50 categories. Wow. Um, and, and you know, there, there can be 10, 12 um, competitors in each category. Um, 
So, you know, they, they can be difficult and they are hard. And, mm. um, you, you know, there's also there's, there's so many little tiny nuances, to be honest, Rachel. Yeah. You know, it's, it's how you hold the microphone, you know, so, that, you know, the sound guy's getting the, the best pitch out of you and you're not popping and so on. And, and, and it's it, you know, making sure you have a view of the stage so you can anticipate talking the walk, you know, um, which is one of the jobs you have to do. So the winner is announced. And then as they come up to stage, very often you're going and they won because they bathe regularly and they're nice to their mums uh, <laughs> and they have a dog called Sam. Um, and it depends on how far away they are from the stage. This is a silly little thing. And of course, to most people, it won't matter in the least. But your job really is to finish as they hit the stage. So you have to be looking around for where they are in the room, how far that walk is knowing when to get the sound guy to dip the music to allow you to come back in and talk the walk uh, and then time that so that when they get to the stage, you know, you've finished and the applause comes back in and they get the award and so on. What you don't want to be doing is still talking as they receive the award and then they approach the microphone and are about to say, thank you so much. I really appreciate this award. And you're still gabbling on, which means that they can't start. So it, it's that sort of awareness of stuff mm. that's going on around you, which may sound completely immaterial, but is actually all part of the skill of yeah. being able to do live work like that. Yeah. Wow. Wonderful. Wonderful. It's, it's fascinating hearing, you know, your side um, and your, yeah, your insights into it all. Um, and I want to kind of move on to obviously the agency, because that's, that's really interesting. And, you know, I think um, lots of people will be really interested to hear about excellent talent, your voice agency. So, so tell us, how did you, how did you start it? And, and why did you start it? Um, the year is 1996. Um, you have to imagine a flat in Ealing and a large dining room table. Okay. Um, and, and, and initially, I had an ex-girlfriend uh, who ran a model agency. And my plan was, how ridiculous is this? My plan was that uh, every time I was out doing a job, which was mostly voiceover at that point, I would just transfer the phones to the model agency. They would answer and take messages, which I would deal with when I came back. Um, how stupid was that? Uh, and in fact, it never came to, to, to fruition with that because actually my brother Pete left university having done french and linguistics at york university uh, and was looking for a job and i said but do you want to come and uh, run this thing he said all right so i kind of i paid him in birdseed and rizzlers and the rest is history really. <laughs> um and and when we built this amazing thing uh, why did i do it because as i mentioned a little earlier i thought we could do it better than the rest technology was beginning to change back then you got a job because uh, you rang a voiceover agency and there weren't very many of them in those days. Yeah. And uh, you said, I need a voice that could do this, this and this. So off the shelf, the massive shelves behind you in the office, you selected the cassettes. Yes, cassettes, because oh, CDs hadn't been invented then. <laughs> you selected the cassettes off the wall and you packed them in a box and you gave them to clueless couriers who then ran around London on a motorbike and delivered them to this person who then had to sit with a hi-fi and listen through the reels um and uh yeah we, we we were producing you know you had to have 50 cassettes of each artist sitting there um because there was no other way of them hearing stuff mm. and i sat in a conference 
um, that was one of the conference that I was moderating, actually. Again, you know, a lot of my time is spent standing on other people's stage, uh, stages as a broadcast journalist, helping them to moderate and making the red thread through one, two, three days of conference, interviewing guests, CEOs, conducting panel sessions, et cetera, et cetera. So that is another part, huge part of my work, which really, unless you've seen me on stage and know I've worked with you as a company, you probably have no idea that I do. Um, so again, you know, the, the voiceover is probably the most visible. Siri is the most visible, but it is really a tiny part of, of my career. Um, and I'd sat in this conference and they were talking about um, automated mailboxes, um, phone mailboxes, so that you could touch tone your way. And I sat there and I thought, actually, do you know what? If you put a voiceover reel in one of those digital mailboxes, you could allow people to hear it over the phone anytime they wanted. So if you're sitting in an edit suite on a Sunday and you wanted to book a voice for Monday, you didn't have to wait until Monday to do it because you could listen through to these voices. Now, yeah, it was a bit ham-fisted and it wasn't the best, but it was it was far more than was available by anybody else at that time. Yeah. And, and so um, we started with a thing called the megaphone. Um, uh, which we thought was a brilliant name. And we had 19 voices when we started. Uh, and you, you would dial the number. We would dial, we, we, we got the, the, the phone number um, uh, 1-800, no, 0800 voice That was it. Um, and with, to this day, people still go, how do you dial a word? Do you know what? Even on a current mobile phone, <laughs> you, you, you can do it now while, while, you, while you're sitting there. You can go in, you can open up your phone and go to the keypad and have a look. You will still see letters underneath the numbers. Yeah. That's how you dial a word. So if you're dialing voice, you go eight, six, four, two, three. That was the number. But that's how you dial the word voice. It's very big in America. You will know that. You know, all the adverts are, you know, yeah. dial 1-800, go clean your pool uh, yeah. or whatever it might be. <laughs> Um, but they're very big into that because they figured that out a long time ago. We haven't got a clue. We still have no idea. So that was a complete waste of time and money um, promoting ourselves on that. But it did mean you would dial the number and you'd then get asked, do you want male or female? Uh, and because it was only you know, 20 odd voices, there was only 10 to listen to. So you could listen through each of the 10 and you could skip them. So you listen to the first bit, first one. No, not don't like that one. Hit three to go forward, hit one to go back and so on. So we devised a system of being able to go backwards and forwards through the reels and hear one again if you wanted to. So um, it wasn't too te too te tedious, as it were. Yeah. But that's what we hung it on to begin with. And because, as I say, I thought we could do it better than the rest. And then, of course, two years later, really, the Internet turned up. And we then started and used technology far more, far earlier than, than other people. We were the first agency to have uh, reels that streamed instead of reels that downloaded because you didn't want to have to download everybody's reel to your computer. And half of the agencies, of course, firewalls were hugely protective in those days. Mm -hmm. So the advertising agents were going, well, we can't listen to that because, you know, our firewall won't allow us to stream any data. Certainly won't allow us to download anything. Uh, so we came up against that as well because we were new with the technology. Um, so we're the first agency to have some streaming, first agency to have uh, a casting couch, a digital casting couch where you put in the details of what you wanted in the various categories and up came the reels that you wanted. First agency to indulge in, in sound bites. So we didn't do 90 second reels. We did 25 second reels. 
because if you've ever seen anybody cast a voice, it's thoroughly depressing when you've spent hours and lots of money putting together a 90 second show real hard finally crafting it and 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 we did that because we knew that you know on a 90 second reel the more polish you put into that reel the more it rubs off on the artist so your reel if it's the more polished it is the better you look it's like wearing a sharp suit yeah wear incredibly impressive clothes and people think you're doing really really well driving it in a a, you know an interesting car people think you're doing really really well charge more money than everybody else funnily enough and people think you're doing really, really well and they must employ you rather than the others because you must be providing extra value. So there's all these little tricks which are equally applicable to showreels. But despite that, when you've seen somebody casting, you know, these beautifully handcrafted reels and they sit there and they listen to three seconds and click next, you go, yeah, we need to have a way of being able to get people to listen to clips far quicker, far tighter. So we did the soundbite reels, which are five clips in less than 20 seconds almost. Um, All of these things we were very keen to do and take advantage of um, because we thought we could do the whole thing better than the rest. And we've always striven to. What's happened is we've had the ideas and, of course, everybody else has caught us up. Um, So your competitive advantage doesn't always last very long. Um, but we are very, you know, we, we pride ourselves on being incredibly quick, incredibly reliable uh, and having artists on our books who really are the creme de la creme. We will not take everybody, you know, even if there are damn good people out there, really good voices, very capable voices out there. Just because you're a great voice doesn't necessarily mean we will work with you. You have to think about the business in the same way we do. You have to understand it's a, an amazing business to be working in uh you have to understand it's 50 percent about being great to work with and 50 percent about being a great voice you know those things are really really important and you have to like the people have you ever tried being nice about somebody you don't like yeah <laughs> you know we're, we're, we're being nice about 200 odd people all the time uh, and if one of them is being a, you know, a total pain in the ass which i have to say none of our artists are of course but I mean, if you've got one who's really being difficult or awkward or annoying, do we want to spend time being nice about them? It's a very simple equation. Um, so yeah, they they have to be lovely people. Yeah. And 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 so yeah, I mean, what do you what do you enjoy about? I mean, because you you have agents that work for you. So do you do you ever you don't kind of work hands on like. In the agency. No, I, I, I never wanted to be the sort of agent such as John Sachs. Oh, sorry. Did I did I drop a name there? <laughs> uh, who, who set up their own agency, answered the phone and said, uh, yeah, do you know what? I think John Briggs will be good for that. Um, I'll just see if he's available. Yes, funnily enough, he is available on that day. Um, no, I, I never, ever wanted to be um, that sort of person. Um, and uh, um, I, I think we've avoided that. I you know the the. Yeah. the I did answer the phones right at the very beginning. Of course, I have done. And if I'm in the office today and there's an overflow phone call, of course, I'll pick the phone up. I don't stand there and go, I'm sorry, I'm the boss. I don't do that sort of thing. You know, uh, actually, most of the time you'll find me kind of cleaning the toilets and unplugging and I'm replugging the Ethernet underneath the desk. That's that's where I seem to spend most of my time whenever I'm in the office. Um, but no, I, I we've always employed other people to run it. And, and, and largely because I've had so much else in my career as well, so many other things that I uh, have been doing. So I didn't, 
I, I didn't have the necessity to to actually run the thing myself. So Pete ran it to begin with, my brother, um, Pete Gold, who's a recognized voiceover in his own right. And that's what got him into the into the career was was working mm. for me. Um, then we had a variety of people who, who, who ran it from there, you know, a former LBC producer friend of mine, Ruth, came in and ran it. And we had a lovely TV producer who got fed up with constantly proposing, you know, TV ideas that you spent six months working on only to have a commission editor going, mm, nah, I don't think so. So she wanted to do something where she could follow people's careers and really invest in them with Marie Claire, you know. So we had a, we've had, a, you know, a, a wealth of amazing people. Um, been very, very lucky. This podcast is sponsored by Focusrite. Focusrite's range of Scarlet Audio interfaces has already helped make more recordings than any other interface in history. And with the third generation, you'll sound better than ever. The Scarlet is enabling millions of voiceover artists, musicians, podcasters, and content producers to record, mix, and playback audio in studio quality everywhere, all the time. Find out more at focusrite.com. So just for, for, for people listening who maybe are interested in becoming an agent, a voiceover agent, um, <laughs> <laughs> what, what, did, what, I mean, what makes a good voiceover agent and what would you say to anyone who's thinking about becoming a voiceover agent? Um, number one, don't. Oh. <laughs> no, I don't really mean that. I mean, it can be an amazing voyage. Be aware there's an awful lot more agencies out there now than there were when I started. So, yeah. so you know, we started when there were really only a handful of, of, of names and competitors. There's quite a few out there now. So it's very competitive. There's a lot more voices out there now. Yeah. So it is much more competitive. You work twice as hard in many ways to stand still. Um, but understand the industry well. Have a yeah. lot of good contacts. Don't don't go into it if you don't have contacts. We were very lucky. I'd, I'd worked at Channel 4, as I mentioned, and an awful lot of people uh, at Channel 4 at that point had then started dissipating into various other places. So the head of Channel 4 presentation, presentation is the department and a television station which organizes the continuity and the trailers and the promotions on a station, the bits in between the programs. So an awful lot of people who worked in presentation at Channel 4, A, had been incredibly innovative because Channel 4 was just completely different to any bit of broadcasting that had occurred before. Mm -hmm. So they were very imaginative, very creative. And they went off and formed their own companies or they went back into things like the BBC. So Pam Masters, who was head of uh, a presentation at Channel 4, moved back to the BBC because the BBC had seen how successful she was at making that channel very individual and, and its identity very clear. And so they, they, they employed her back again. I think she'd originally started there. But a lovely lady called Sherry Cole, who then went off and started doing things for Granada Sky Broadcasting. And both of those people, luckily, actually rather you know, were, were fond of me and, and liked what I'd done. Um, and I had good relationships with both of them. And so we were able to take our artists and go to them and go, look, we've got we've got some really good people who I would recommend to you to use. Um, and, and funnily enough, it's worth mentioning as well that, you know, television promos were generally looked down upon even by the other voiceover agents at that point because there were no repeat fees. Mm. They, they they only wanted commercials because with every commercial there was a repeat fee on it so you got a lot of money television promotions you didn't you got a you got a lesser fee per hour for voicing it um and there was no extra money dependent on how many times it was played which of course there were with commercials mm. so they didn't really go for that arena and we did 
And because it was my background and because I knew a lot of people in it, it was an area we were able to infiltrate very successfully very early on, which provided the backbone of our work. So you do need to have that. You need to have an in Mm. from someone who is going to back you and provide you with work. If you were to just stick an advert in tomorrow and go, setting up a voiceover agency, if you've got a show reel, please send it to me. Um, That's all very well. You'll end up with a lot of voices in your books. But will you have the right contacts to be able to create the work? Uh, And I think that's the that's the difficulty. I think we can look back on 25 years. We've created just over 20 million pounds worth of work for people in that time. And that's the side benefit of it that I didn't really think about. Mm. You know, I knew I wanted to run a business that did things better in an arena that I understood very well. What I never thought about was actually the pleasure you can drive from finding work for others, creating livelihoods for other people. And that bit does make me quite proud. As it must do with you, with the, with the yes. voiceover network, because you know you get that 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 warm fuzzy feeling yes. that you've taken somebody from not being able to do something they really really wanted to do and enabling them to yeah. do that. And I think that's a really, I think if you're going in to do any business, regardless of whether it's a voiceover or whether it's you know handmade mugs or portraiture or uh, you know, needlework, you have to do something which gives you a feedback Mm. that enriches your soul in some way. Because if it doesn't, you will not be committed to it and you will not make it work long term. Short term, yes, Mm. you might. But you need to have something that feeds your soul, possibly at a level that you don't even recognize when you start, that comes back to you and goes, do you know what? You did something good there. It's like planting a tree. Mm. Planting trees is a really, really good thing. As I walk around places and I see these enormous trees in people's back gardens or in parks, you go, 200 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, somebody somebody actually nurtured and planted that tree or decided yeah. at least not to cut down the tree that sowed itself. Mm. And that, that was a really good thing because look at it. We can enjoy it today. So the, 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 there are strange bits of feedback to things that you do like that. Mm-hmm. That, that that are are really really important, uh, and boy, do we need our souls to be enriched currently? We do, we do, and I, you know, and I totally, you know, um, I feel like having a positive impact on other people's lives is the most rewarding thing that you can ever do, and and so for me, in terms of you know, I love being a voiceover artist, like you, you know, you and you love being a voiceover artist, but but actually, I. I get more joy when I see people in the voiceover network, members of the voiceover network, you know, succeeding. That actually gives me more joy and more satisfaction than when I'm booking great jobs mm-hmm. and, and, and doing really well in my career. It's There's something beautiful about knowing that what you're doing is is having a positive impact on other people's lives and that, uh, that and feeds think, my yeah, soul. That, and that's very telling as well because, you know, we are in a competitive industry. We all, we, we do compete against others who are similar to ourselves yeah. to get work. Um, and, and there's nothing worse than having auditioned for a commercial and then hearing the person that they used on it that wasn't you yeah. when it actually hits the airwaves. Well, I could have done it better than that. <laughs> oh, I was yeah. far better than that. Um, you know, there, there, there's all of that that, that goes on. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you, you know, that, that in an arena which is competitive 
actually very often you can find great warmth and solace uh, in having helped somebody else achieve something that, that, that otherwise they might not have done. I agree. So um, in terms of, so John, you have worked in the industry, you know, for many years and you have seen people succeed and you've had great success in your career as well, but you will have also witnessed people struggling and people kind of, you know, not succeeding. Um, and I'm just interested from your point of view, you know, what, what do you see as the main differences? What is it that people who make it in the voiceover industry do compared to people who, who maybe sort of come in, try it? you know, it doesn't work and then and then they have to, you know, go get a day job. Well, my old adage, if you wanted it enough, you'll get it. If you don't get it, you would, didn't want it enough, I'm afraid. Okay, um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a fairly simple equation. Um, yes, there are some people who are who are unsuited to it. Let, let, let's not kid ourselves that everybody can do this job because, of course, they can't. No. Um, there are some people who just don't have the elasticity in their vocal cords and don't, aren't able to learn um, the techniques that you need, but the majority of people probably can. Um, do as much as you can personally. Remember the voice is a muscle that you need to keep in training. And we're lucky we're in training every single day as an athlete is. If you're constantly in competition all the time, you know, running around the track, you know, the days when you're not in competition, you're, you're busily re rehearsing or practicing or you know, putting in the extra hours to train. We, we do that all the time. So uh, it, that it's one of those where if you're not already working in the circuit, you do have a harder time getting in. But, you know, go to your local community radio station, see what they, opportunities they've got in terms of how, you know, they, you might use your voice there. A hospital radio, if there are such things, I don't know how many hospital radios still exist anymore. Um, but that used to be a big starting point for broadcasters. Uh, opportunities just, just to voice little things um, so that you get some practice in, read to your kids, do all the silly voices in the books, you know, how we need the poo being like that, and being, being up there, you know, all of that sort of stuff that kids love anyway when you put the effort in. Um, but you have to be able to to have that elasticity in your voice. Uh, newsreader friends who I've worked with many, many years who sort of come out and go, oh, well, do you know what? I think John does a, has a voiceover agency. Oh, let's give him a buzz and see if he's got any work. And I go, yeah, yes, lovely. And you read the news really, really well, but that's all you do. You know, you have your, you are, I'm afraid, a one-trick pony. I don't know how you work if you stick your, a commercial script in front of you. Because you have to have that level. Of, to be a jobbing, commercial, proper, real voiceover to an agent, you've got to have the flexibility to be more than just a narrator, more than just a newsreader, more than just a commercial voice. You have to have the flexibility and the understanding of what the disciplines occur. Take classes. Yeah. If you're British, you don't take classes. If you're English, mm. British, um, you know, you just don't you don't bother. In America, even those actors who've kind of done you know Hollywood movies, constantly taking classes, yeah, constantly doing new stuff. And I try it myself. I've just started to tap dance. I've just started to learn. To no, tap you dance. haven't. I'm far too old to do it. I've I can't. You're, you're it. learning to tap dance. I am. I love Gene Kelly. That is the Kelly. coolest thing. That's the coolest thing. I've always thing. loved Gene Kelly. And, you know, the reason I love Gene Kelly is because he always described himself as a hoofer. And my <laughs> God, Gene Kelly, you were never a hoofer. You were just amazing. Uh, whereas Fred Astaire and the likes of that were kind of good. They, they rather liked themselves. Gene Kelly didn't, but he was every bit as good, if not better. And I've always liked his stuff. And occasionally you think, oh, God, I'd love to tap dance. And I thought, 
what the hell am I doing? This is the first time in my life I could commit to anything regularly because none of us have got, you know, I'm not traveling anywhere. Normally, two or three times a month, I'm out of the country working on conferences and other gigs. Uh, you know, for the last eight, nine months, of course, we've been going nowhere. And I don't see any prospect of us going anywhere for a while either. So I thought, right, every Thursday, I'm going to go and learn to tap dance. Uh, and I'm, I'm not brilliant at it. I probably never will be. But the satisfaction of learning a discipline and doing something different I'm sure will apply to other things. So yeah. take classes, even if you think you've got it made, even if you think you know what's going on. And that's the beauty of what you're doing, Rachel, is you're providing people with, you know, you're transferring the knowledge from those people who are experts in their sector within the industry. And you are allowing other people to understand it and make it and use it, which is absolutely invaluable. And it, you know, nobody else was doing it absolutely vital so you know that that's brilliant and that's exactly what should be happening thank you thank you and you've always been such a supporter and i really you know it means a lot to me you've always supported the voiceover network and my my vision and and what i've what i've created so yes yeah, so well we do yeah, it but we, because not 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 out of sycophancy or any reason you know other than the fact that it was it's a brilliant idea and it was what was absolutely needed you know um, you know, we, we are an, uh, a fascinating and slightly odd profession and we yeah. work in a vacuum most of the time and we don't share. So actually making people share is a really, really good thing in our industry. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and just to kind of finish this off, uh, it's been amazing. But um, just a, a last question for you. So what would you say? to a younger version of John Briggs. <laughs> run, <laughs> run away as fast as you possibly can. Head for the hills, young man, and don't come back. Um, well, what would I say to a younger version of uh, uh, John? Uh, do you know what? I would say value the opportunities that come your way. Um, I'm not somebody who, who regrets anything. I don't think you should ever regret things. You take decisions and you work on things by virtue of what's happening to you at the time. I am somebody who tries to live in the present, which is hard because we are constantly told to plan for our future. And of course, we have no control over our future, even though we vaguely imagine we have. Yeah. So I am somebody who tries to live in the present. And I think you take decisions on, on what is happening to you there and then at that time. I was enormously privileged. I had a huge amount of success every rung of my ladder went up. I encountered no snakes in the first 10 years of my career. Um, and the first time I did encounter a snake was was a bit weird. It was the first time I, I actually didn't have a contract renewed. I didn't, it wasn't my own decision to leave the job that I was in. Um, was, was, a, was an enormous shock. And I, I should have spent more time relishing the things that I had succeeded at and the opportunities I had been given. So, um, I think I would say when you're when you have success, relish it, value it for what it is, enjoy it. Remember, it might not always be there. Yeah. Um, so suck the very marrow, the core out of it while you are doing it. <laughs> Probably the only thing I'd say. I love that. Celebrate your successes. That's a wonderful way to, to finish this podcast. John Briggs, it has been an absolute honour having you on the VoiceOver Hour podcast. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your stories and your fantastic, inspiring information and, uh, and knowledge with us all. So thank It's a you. pleasure. I'm sorry I've gone on far too long, but then, you know, you did get me on my favourite subject, me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much, John. Thanks, Rachel. 
Thank you for listening to the VoiceOver Hour podcast, brought to you by the VoiceOver Network, with special sponsors, Rode Microphones, Source Elements, Studio Bricks, and Focusrite. The Buzz magazine is actually the only magazine in the world dedicated to the voiceover industry. It's available globally, in print and online, and in English and Spanish. It's a quarterly magazine and it's filled with reviews, interviews, stories, up-to-date information. The Buzz magazine is a wonderful platform that builds bridges for voiceover communities around the world to come together to share relevant information. And I'm incredibly proud of it. My name's Rachel Naylor. Thank you so much for joining us. Make sure you check out our next episode where we bring you more behind-the-scenes stories in the voiceover industry. You're listening to a Podcast Company podcast. This was made by Podcast Syndicator, where we help you go from start to grow to making money with your podcast. Let us help you share your message and your voice with the world. Reach out now, Jason at PodcastSyndicator.com or Brett at PodcastSyndicator.com to find out more. Thank you for listening and do come back to hear nothing but the best podcasts.